Hey, it's Liz Kelly, and welcome to the Ringer Podcast Network. Our very own Bill Simmons just released his 500th Bill Simmons podcast episode, featuring Bill Hader talking about HBO's new season of Barry, SNL stories, and favorite movies. And for the very first time, Bill is joined by a long-awaited special guest. He also just recorded a new Rewatchables episode on Fast Five with Shea Serrano. And after you listen to the Rewatchables, head over to the Winging It podcast, where Vince and Kent interview the Fast Five star himself, Ludacris, where they discuss his career, his new music, and Fast 9. You can find these episodes and much more Ringer content on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Dave Chang Show, part of the Ringer Podcast Network, presented by Major Domo Media. Today's guest is the chef barbecue master, Aaron Franklin of Franklin's Barbecue in Austin, Texas. We recorded this during South by Southwest a month or so ago. Last week, we had Ty Haney, CEO, founder of Outdoor Voices. Next week, we'll have the great skateboarder, Eric Costin. But I was very excited to talk to Aaron Franklin, someone I've long admired and a restaurant Franklin's Barbecue that is truly one of my favorite places anywhere in the world. We recorded this during South By again, and if you haven't been to South By Southwest, it's total insanity. There's just music and shit going on all day, everywhere. And at the Uber Eats house, we were recording and I was cooking dinner later that night with some great American chefs. And they were doing soundstage testing. There was band testing. So there was all kinds of ambient noise. So first and foremost, Isaac Lee, our ringer producer, wanted to apologize to everyone listening because it was not ideal during the time we were recording with Aaron Franklin. So apologies if the sound quality is not up to snuff, but we did our best. But uh, that shouldn't deter us from a great conversation with Aaron I don't think anyone would argue with me saying that Aaron Franklin is one of the top five, maybe top three, probably best barbecue pit master in the country or most influential. There's a huge line outside his restaurant every day, rain or shine. People wait for hours for his barbecue. I have. And it's one of those very rare places that actually lives up to the hype. In this day and age, that just almost never happens. It's so fucking delicious. He does Texas-style barbecue, so brisket is the main thing to get. But his ribs are so delicious, and all the hot links and the pulled pork, and especially the turkey, it's all so good. But what people don't know about Franklin is all the time and obsessive dedication that went into opening the place. Aaron is a pretty young guy, and I think people assume he was this overnight sensation. But that's just not true. He got to where he is by being completely single-minded about his craft. And what I personally find most inspiring is that he was willing to be bad at it for years before he was great. Although I'm sure even bad was pretty fucking good. I couldn't think of this term when we were discussing craft and the dedication to it during our podcast. And for the life of me, I'm so embarrassed because I think about the concept of shokunin. It's the Japanese term for becoming a a master craftsman. They even have a title and uh, honor in Japan for being so great at your craft for artists as well. It's called being a national living treasure. And being a shokunin is essentially becoming one of the great ones in your field. So good that you should be honored. And it's very much part of Japanese culture and its history. And 
I think it's much more prevalent in Japan than it is in the United States or the rest of the world, it seems, where everyone wants to be an expert immediately to download the information instantly. But Aaron is the American equivalent of a shokunin. I actually believe like we have some pizza makers like Dom DeMarco in, in New York. They're there, but they're few and far between. And, and maybe people don't realize just how much these individuals have sacrificed to become great at their craft. So anyone out there that wants to be great at something should study how he works. And there's a plethora of information out there, both in books, obviously the food he makes, and uh, in videos and TV he's done. But I oftentimes think people are copying the wrong thing when they try to emulate Aaron Franklin, who really changed barbecue in Texas and put it to a, a national level. Obviously, it was very popular before, but I still haven't been able to figure out how he did what he did. And that's why I wanted to have this conversation with him. I have just long admired what he's done and one of the great guys in the business. I will shut the fuck up now. Here's my conversation with Aaron Franklin of Franklin's Barbecue. Needless to say, my wife gave me a 24-hour pass. <laughs> I'm on the flight first thing back to New York Yes, tomorrow. you are. <laughs> yeah, the baby has definitely uh, changed the scheduling. I'm yeah. learning this. Nothing's well, going to go according to I feel to like plans. you've got about a year before you really like get knee-deep and stuff. Like Once they start to actually recognize you, it's game on, dad. <laughs> <laughs> I'm uh, a couple weeks in, so yeah, this yeah. is... Yeah, the lack of sleep hasn't been that bad because I don't sleep that much anyway. The only difference now is I have to like be doing stuff yeah. while I'm not sleeping, helping out. And it's great though. It's just been amazing. Yeah, it's sweet and fun. It gets to be a lot more fun too. <laughs> like, I'm, in, I'm in the zone right now. I just talk about kids and stuff. But um, you know, mine's like five and every morning she like crawls into bed. And she's like, daddy, you want to snuggle? I was like, oh, and I take her to school every morning and stuff like that. It's like, man, so in the dad zone right now, it's not even funny. Speaking of it, your child and your, your namesake restaurant, would you ever want your daughter to pick up the family business? Man, I don't know. You know, we've thought about it a bunch because that's kind of how barbecue works. Traditionally, barbecue's always been a thing. It's like it's generation to generation. You pass it down and it's like a family business and stuff. And it very much is a family business. But I don't think we're going to ever put any pressure on her to work there. I mean, she already works there. I mean, she busses tables and stuff now. <laughs> um, she's good with a sandy bucket. But yeah, I don't think I want to put that pressure on her. Like if she's super into it and it turns out that that's her thing, radical. That's awesome. But like I want her to be creative and find her own passions and, and do whatever she wants to do. So she chooses not to do this. You're going to be great. Totally fine. Well, Willy Wonka that thing off or something. Because I, I ask this question to almost everyone that has kids in this business. And some are like 100%. I really want them to take it over. The older they get, the more you know yeah. nostalgic they are about this idea. Yeah. And then others, I'm just like, there's no way. So, and that's kind of, kind of coming from my personal experience. I, I grew up in a music store. My grandparents owned a record shop and then turned in and they sold guitars and amplifiers and stuff like that. And when I was 18, my grandpa wanted to retire. I was like, hey, this place, and I'd already moved to Austin, you know, at that point. And it was about two hours from here where I grew up. Um, he's like, hey, I want to retire. I want you to take the family business. I'm like, ugh. And it was like really awesome that, you know, he built that place to hand off to me one day. Um, I didn't really know that, <laughs> that that was kind of his game plan, you know, and that's cool. I mean, what 18 year old kid would be like, man, music shop? Heck yeah. But it was in my hometown where I didn't want to be. 
Um, and it was a really hard decision to be like, man, I love you. I love this place. You know, I grew up in that store, like fixing guitars and building tube amps and stuff like that, but it wasn't my thing. You know, I was like, I got to figure out what I want to do with my life. And it was kind of hard for him. So I think I just don't want to put my kid through that. Right. Well, understandable. And what about the decision? Was, was your choice to get into food difficult or was it music at first? Well, it really naturally happened because I just played music forever and I still do. But it kept me, so my kitchen, I don't really have any real kitchen experience because I play music at night. So thus I couldn't work in restaurants at night. So I had to have a day job. But if you kind of think about like, you know, kitchens versus music, I mean, it's pretty much the same thing. I mean, like we run our restaurant like a band <coughs> and stuff. So I think it was a pretty natural progression as I realized that it was getting older and Stacey and I were going to get married, you know, like we've been dating for a long time and stuff like that. And it's like, you know, going on tours, not, not as cool as it used to be. I think I need to get a job. Man, this barbecue thing's really fun. <laughs> was that was that like bittersweet? You were like, well, I gotta, I gotta hang these up. No, no, it felt super organic. Like I didn't even question myself. I was like, you know, maybe I'm just not feeling this. Like, I mean, if you're driving around in a in an unmarked van for years, like playing music and stuff, sleeping on hardwood floors from strangers' houses, like, well, that's really no way to live. I think eventually, I kind of just started growing up, like most people do sometime. Maybe is there anything that you learn as a touring musician? That has made you more successful as a chef restaurateur. Yeah, I think all of it. I mean, really, the way that we set up, because we started off in a, in a little barbecue trailer uh, a little over nine years ago. And I think there are parallels between the way that we do that. You know, like we cut the brisket and we cut all the meat like on a cutting board in front of the customer. It's like, that's like your show. Like you're on stage. You know, it's like, hey, blah, blah, blah. And you got to kind of use car salesmen some stuff and make things work and time everything just right. You got to like keep the energy going and pace everything uh, same way you would do with a show. But then like you have this whole like practice, like getting ready for the show. And that's the cooking process. You're up all night. You're doing it over and over and over and getting better at it and tweaking little things. And then as far as like the way like we make decisions, the way like hire people, like it's pretty much the same as a band. I feel like. As a musician, do you think you were better as a musician than as a, a chef? And no. you just didn't get your break? No, I think I'm better as a cook. And I don't really get to cook that much anymore. I mean, obviously things change and I'm, I'm more the maintenance guy and I do like plunge toilets and stuff. Cause that's apparently really good at that. <laughs> <laughs> I think making food, I can maintain that for a lot longer, but I mean, playing drums forever. It's like, ah, uh, like that's kind of a young man's game, but a lot like barbecue is. I mean, I'm too old. I couldn't do now what I did with barbecue 15 years ago. Why There's is no that? Way. For someone that doesn't understand. It's just too physically demanding. I mean, like my back hurts too much. Do you find yourself constantly explaining to people that are like, wait, like, why does your body hurt? They, they, <laughs> like it's called you, find people, you, feel, you find that people that are like on the outside looking in, trying to understand what you do a little bit better, they're always a little bit dumbfounded as to the physicality. Of oh, the yeah, yeah, for sure. And I think more people realize that now since barbecue is kind of a, it's a lot different than it used to be and the interwebs and all that stuff. But um, yeah, I mean, I still have people say and I, maybe they mean it as a joke. I'm not sure. Uh, but people kind of pop in and be like, oh, so what time did you get here to start cooking all this stuff? It's like, I didn't. I got here at 8.30 after I took my kid to school, did some emails, made an espresso, you know, just kind of busting tables and stuff. But yeah, I mean, the I think the idea that there can be just one person cooking 2,500 pounds of meat on six cookers, and then, that you know, it takes 24 hours to cook one day's worth of food Anyway, so that's 24 hours. Then you've got service. And then, like, at the end of the day, like, you're still standing there. It's like, man, I used to do it like that all the time, but I'm just too old. 
Can't Sounds like someone wants to show you how to play drums. I, I think so. <laughs> <laughs> so there have been days you've been working the pits and you've had to put 2,500 pounds of meat and put all this. The, the, Absolutely. And how many pounds of, of wood do you think that is? Uh, I don't know about wood. It's about six cords a week. And the weight really depends on how much moisture is in the air, how green the wood is, all that kind of stuff. But it's, Not it's light. quite a bit. Every day, that's wear and tear. On yeah. your joints. Oh, it is. My knees are crapping out from, you know, back in the day when we cooked in trailers, I would lean into trailers with meat lugs, you know, as leverage. And now my right knee is like super messed up. And it's just from that. And it's like being on your feet all day. I mean, obviously being in kitchens is hard, man. But I, I don't know. Maybe it's me. I, I find myself always explaining that to people. It's like your body breaks down because they don't think it's like a sport. Sometimes oh, it's so it athletic, is, though. Right? Like I jammed my finger on a Nerf ball when I was a kid. Like I am not athletic in any way. But yeah, like cooking and stuff. I mean, you've got the fluidity in your movements. I mean, I think it's super athletic. Light on your feet, you know? I mean, there's like, there's and especially some athletics the, the going dance, on. And I'm sure there is the routine for everyone that works at. Absolutely. Right? right? Yeah. Know your I love job. that stuff. It's so much fun. And oh, I see yeah. that. When I go to Franklin's, and it's funny you brought up the idea of sort of a family business or like the, the, the intimacy of a band, because that feeling that when I first went into Franklin's, and you see the line, and it's one of these places that, again, it's got a very long line because people want to eat there. And it's one of these very few things in life where it's as good or better than the reputation. Well, hopefully so. And it is. And that's a pretty me. lofty reputation, too. You're like, ah, oh, it's got to be the best thing in the world. It's like, it might not be, but you're going to have fun. And that's the thing, is right when you walk in and you get into the actual physical space, you're being greeted, you mm -hmm. want a beverage, there's like a energy in the room <clears throat> where it's positive. And I've done a few events with you over the years and how you treat your staff. Everyone's got a nickname. Everyone's got this sort of the role. Yep. It's like a band. It is like a family. I mean, like any, like any kitchen or any restaurant, I think, you know, so you mentioned the line and stuff. And uh, I just had a conversation with somebody a little bit ago about like lines and it's like, well, how do you keep people happy? And I mean, obviously like good energy, not to sound like a weird hippie or anything, but just like just good vibes, man. Like, everybody's happy and stuff, but I think it didn't start off this way with Franklin barbecue, but I think we've kind of evolved into it, but I think of it and it's not just like a lunch. It's not like you're going to get a sandwich. Like you can get a sandwich anywhere. You're building memories. Cause I think, I mean, can you talk about that a little bit more because this is what you do better than anyone else is building that memory. It is a memory, but think about like some of your best food moments in life, right? It's like your grandma's house. It's you're in some weird place. It might've been like some not even that good of a food, but it's like where you were at and how it smelled and how it tasted and who you were with or what the weather was like or, or whatever. And I think that kind of, I mean, that's kind of what got me into barbecue in the first place. It's just like kind of the nostalgia of it, you know, and the smell of the wood and the crack of the fire and all this stuff. Um, and those were my memories that translated and then, you know, kind of turned into Franklin barbecue and stuff. But I think it's some of my favorite memories and they usually revolve around food and it might not, maybe the food wasn't even that good, but right. it was where I was at that time. Food nostalgia is a weird, funny it thing. It is a weird thing. And I kind of thrive on it, you know, with hot luck festival and stuff. And then like Franklin barbecue, obviously, but yeah, I think we're kind of like, I think all of us are sort of in the business of making memories. But this is again, the highest praise I can give you because I admire and I try to study individuals in all fields that make something look easy and obviously barbecue we don't we're only talking about the technical aspects of barbecue which is we could talk it about can be a week. endless endless yeah. right 
I mean, it could either be, I say this all the time, but it could either be like as dumbed down as like throw a log on it and make it hot. And, you know, it's fine. Or it could be as technical as you want it to be. It's like somewhere the parameters are wide. Because that is the idea. I mean, when I think of you, I, I, it's, um, oh my gosh, I'm so full from eating too much Veracruz tacos. I can't even remember mm, the, the Japanese name for a masterclass, like craftsmanship. It's a, Oh yeah. I forget too. Um, it's, Several people have told me, though. Yes. That. That. <laughs> I want to punch myself in the face. But I'd have to Google it later, but I don't know. I don't um, have to Google. <laughs> that is what I think you're in that class, right? It's, it's the American version of that, and you're so single-focused on making that. But the idea of single-focused, I think, takes away from the complexity of everything mm-hmm. and all the different variables, which we won't— Get into yeah. today. Because they're out there. They're out There's there. There's a lot of stuff. And I mean, just talking to you sometimes, you were just talking about the cord of wood. How how much does the, the wood weigh? And you were talking, well, it depends on if it's green and the moisture. Yeah, blah, and blah, 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 blah. And that's fascinating. But um, what I was saying was that you make it look simple. You make the operation of feeding people, of being hospitable, mm-hmm. seem easy. And I'm not even talking about the cooking. Yeah. You don't get enough credit for being, I think, the epitome of hospitality. Well, thanks. And I mean that. Like, um, people say it's always about the fucking food, but like, you go there and people are courteous. Well, it should feel like grandma's house. Yeah. And they're nice. Yeah. And you feel like exactly, you feel like you're at someone's home. And that's not easy to do. And I had this epiphany when we cooked at uh, Chris Shepard's um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Southern Smoke. And I saw you setting up your barbecue rig with the whole team there. And I was like, <laughs> like how many trailers do these people yeah. have? <laughs> I mean, you, how many trucks of stuff did you brought two trucks full of stuff? Yeah. Two heavily loaded down trucks. I think this year we're taking a box truck in a van. <laughs> you brought your smoker and you also brought your own heating element boxes, right? You're all, oh, have, oh man, you got to travel with the CVAP. <laughs> I was like, what is going on? No here? variables, no variables. And that's the bane of all these like guest chef gigs is like you're always working on uh, someone else's home turf. And their oh, own- it sucks. And that's why I don't do festivals. It's so hard. Um, but just, people think it should be easy. Yeah, man. It's, you know, somebody like, say Hot Luck, for example, you know, like that was the whole premise to make a festival where each chef is like, well, what do you need? What do you want to do? And to be realistic about it, because like I don't do festivals as, you know, somebody would be like, oh, we need 1,200 portions. Here's a pack of hot dogs, a Weber grill. And you get a $200 stipend. It's like, I'm just doing brisket. I need firewood. I need two smokers, like huge cookers to pull this off. I mean, like, oh, but yeah, it's really hard. I mean, because all that stuff, if you, to take out the variables and to actually cook off site, you have to bring all your own stuff. Barbecue is so like out in left field for that kind of stuff. And I'm seeing you set this whole operation up in Houston out in the back of, uh, underbelly and i'm like seeing all this and i was like fuck me like he understands something that i don't think a lot of people get is that people want to taste your food they may not get the opportunity to go Mm -hmm. to austin and if they are you're going to treat them like they're real customers yeah absolutely that that's pretty special is fucking amazing Um, well the thing you know you're talking about like hospitality and stuff and uh i think that when something has that much passion involved in it and like that much like heart and soul, it's not the food, it's not the wood, it's not this. It comes from the heart, you know, like any food or like a ton of like music and stuff too. But you can't fake it. You can't just like have a product and then try to like 
slip in the backside with hospitality. Like it almost has to come first, I think. I spent time with a Buddhist nun in Korea and she was like, in my lifetime, the happiest person I'd ever met. Cool. And uh, she was saying that the food tastes good because all the nuns are in a good place. Right? Oh, that's it's awesome. made with the best intentions. Mm-hmm. And for a long time, I was like, well, I believe that, but let's be but honest, like, how real is that? <laughs> like, I'm not believing in the new age that the, my positive energy is being transferred yeah, yeah, to yeah. food. But I'm more like, wait. But you can taste love and food, though. You can taste, love, you and can food, taste love and food. And that's what I can't describe. Yeah. There's places that I love that defy reason why mm-hmm. I love so much. It's like Franklin Barbecue. That's <laughs> not no it, reason but, for it. But there are places that don't, don't even serve food as good as Franklin's, but I love it. Yeah. You, you happen to have a place where you also serve amazing food, but it's still made with love. And which is why I think it's one of these rare places that people are like, I need to have it because it defies what I believed it could be. Yeah. And I keep on wondering, like, how do we do more? That's the tricky part, though, because you can't replicate that. Like, when you get the magic on something, you know, like, I mean, tons of stuff all over the place, but you can't replicate magic all the time. You know, like, we can move Franklin Barbecue across the street, and it might taste completely different. Like, I don't know. Like, there's just something special about that, something special about so many other things. It's hard to... It's so hard. But I I keep on thinking that maybe it's similar to the whole idea of... um, there is a correlation to the individual that talks to their plants and they're always healthy, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. It's not the fact that they're talking to their plants, the, the communication no. to the plants. No. It's the fact that they're watching, they're, they're watching them all the time. Yeah. And that minutia. Although I talk care. to the briskets. Hey, buddy, how you doing today? <laughs> Do you? <laughs> I say we let them go. <laughs> and I feel like this is something that I'm trying to rediscover and you know, with this podcast and a lot of people in the industry listening to it, it's like, wait, how do we cook that's this based on this before the awards, before mm-hmm. all this other shit that has gotten lost and amplified because of food media yep. is at the end of the day, people would kill to have what you do. And I think those that even understand that it's very hard for what you do. It's almost impossible. Yeah. What they're copying is the wrong thing. Exactly. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> it's okay for them to copy that. The idea of love, of trying to create this band of intimacy, of making sure that every customer gets something amazing. Yeah, I mean, I think it you know, also comes down to like what people are good at. Like certain people are good at certain things and some people just have like a natural knack for certain things. I don't know the barbecue's my thing, but maybe it is. But yeah, to, for someone to actually recognize what they truly love doing and to be so willing to learn. And also, I think, like, a good level of just being modest about things, too. And, like, knowing, I think, and I say this a lot with barbecue. I tell cooks this all the time at the restaurant. I was like, you know, it's like, if you think you know what you're doing, that is a sure sign that you absolutely have no idea. Because there's always so much to learn. It's with anything. But if you're always like chasing the knowledge and just always trying to make things better and just like tweaking little things, that's kind of where the magic comes in, you know, in a lot of ways. It's almost just kind of like how many, times, how many times do you tell that to younger cooks? All the time. How many of them actually listen to it? None. <laughs> I don't think anyone listens to anything I say, really. Um, but you're telling them that's the, that's the key. You're but that's them- totally true, though. It's like, if you're cocky enough to think, you're like, oh, man, I make the best. And that's kind of always been a thing with barbecue, which I, it's one thing I really dislike about the barbecue stuff. It's like, oh, I make the best, blah, blah, blah. It's like, no, nobody makes the best. The best doesn't exist. 
You know, everybody just, you do Can your you thing. Can you explain that? Because we live in, again, a food world. All these lists everywhere and all kinds of stuff. It's like, man, no one's really the best. Like, this could be the best thing at this given time right now for this particular experience. But that doesn't mean it will be tomorrow. That doesn't mean it wasn't yesterday. Like, it's a giant moving target. And everybody's best is different. My best is way different than what we make at the restaurant. My best is way different than anything I'll ever obtain. But I'm trying to get there. And it's similar to when I talk to some of the best sushi chefs in Tokyo. They all pride themselves. They all think they're their best. But they're like, we're all, on any day, on any piece of fish, the best. Just learning. Yeah. Yeah. There's a... A confidence that's married with this extraordinary humility. Mm-hmm. And, and you have to have that balance. But that's, whole, that's what I'm trying to say. The How the hell do you explain that to someone that's listening or a younger cook? Uh, I think it comes with age is kind of what I've started to learn. Because like, they basically are like, hey, I'm, I'm listening to Aaron. He's telling me that I need to be humble and open, but simultaneously I need to be an expert and know everything. <laughs> ah, what an oxymoron. <laughs> um, yeah, that's yeah, tricky. I mean, I think... I mean, everything has its balance, you know, and I think just staying balanced on things is really important. Not to sound like a crazy person, because really, I mean, just no, no, we talk like crazy people here. Throw a log on it and make it hot, and it'll, I'm sure it'll be fine. But um, yeah, just like for that balance of detail is also the balance in humility and also the balance in just like kind of knowing when to let it go, too. Just be like, nah, it's fine, whatever. Just stay laid back at the same time. And going back to me observing you setting up this amazing operation. And you had the longest lines by far and away, and I was so jealous. Yeah, it's always embarrassing yeah. when that happens. <laughs> Ugh, no, but it was like for a reason. Do you know who is cooking in this parking lot? Why are you in this, this table? And I was like, wow, but people are leaving with joy. They were like, oh, man, I waited three hours for this, and it's awesome. And it was just one bite. <laughs> but, you know, that's such a hard thing to do. But what I saw was you had brought your own, not only your own smoker, your own hot box, your own meat, everything, right? You also brought your own stanchions, like the, the oh, line yeah, dividers. Totally. <laughs> like, I was like, what kind of lunatic is No this? detail left unturned. <laughs> but it's just barbecue. And like, shame on me because you were sort of like um, deprogramming me because I was like, oh, it's got to be like simple. But it's how you approach fucking everything is the furthest thing from simplicity. Yeah, very true. My Why wife gripes at me all the time. She's like, you're making it too complicated. I'm like, no, 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 no. Just, just give me a minute. <laughs> and there was a nice rhythm, right? Like, yep. I don't know if you realize I was going there. I wasn't trying to eat. I was trying to, yes, I was trying to eat, but yeah, I was well, yeah, you know. trying to observe. <laughs> you're there. You might as well get a bite to eat. <laughs> Everyone gets a hand, like almost like a handshake welcome. And the, even though the, the line is long, you are organized in this like giant, like S of a shape of a line Q. Everyone gets to actually get their plate of food. They get a greeting and it's slow. You guys yeah. are not trying to move slow, but you're trying to treat each guest as their like a real person, well, not a number. Yeah. Well, and that's true. And that's what we do at the restaurant too. We were like, oh, I stood in line for four hours. Well, if you show up four hours before a restaurant opens, of, of course. Um, but the timing for the line at the restaurant and the timing at events and like Southern Smoke and stuff, it's like when that person is in front of me, like time stops. Like that is their time. Like if they want to like, I mean, within reason, of course, right. we're not going to have like a deep heart to heart or anything. But yeah, like at that like second, like that is their world for the 30 seconds or the one minute or whatever. Um, that's because so they've, amazing. They've waited for this thing. I'm I mean, sorry. Like, I love that this person is in front of me that I've never met and I'm totally going to like 
talk to them like, you know, I just want to know about them. That's so cool. Where did you get that sort of like Zen mentality of like, I got it. We're going to be in this moment, me and this, this person. I have no idea. It just kind of happened one day. Um, it happened before we opened up the barbecue trailer. I don't know. I think I probably got a lot of that from my grandparents' music store, actually, just kind of the way they treated, you know, customers that would come in as always regulars and, you know, buying stuff. It's like, oh, hey, Billy Bob, how's your kid? Get his braces off, you know, like small town Texas stuff. Um, but I think that kind of carried just, I don't know. I like talking to people, I guess. I have explained this to others when you get to Franklin's or if you are getting the food at Franklin's in an event, it's like the highest compliment again that I, I think of because uh, having met President Clinton, right? He's someone that's like, you're in his like little world yeah. for that moment of time. That's awesome. And I was like, that's the same only thing with place. Obama. We met him and it was totally the same, same thing. thing. And I was just like, man, that is just the most amazing thing in the world. So I'm just comparing the experience of eating your food. I'm not even talking about the fucking food yet to Obama and Clinton. <laughs> <laughs> Meeting them and talking to them. <laughs> that's amazing. It's pretty cool. But it's real. And I can, I wonder why people aren't copying this. Um. I think because it has to come from the heart. You can't just copy that. Like the love that somebody puts into this food, you can't pencil that in. You can't, there's not an algorithm for that. Aren't you wondering sometimes like, man, if I could just um, move this line faster, we could do more and blah, blah, blah. No, no, actually they haven't. Because it's a, it's an interesting thing. If we move the line faster, then we run out of seats at the same time. So we kind of have to like speed up and slow down a little bit. And then sometimes maybe you'll talk a little bit more if you're waiting for a seat to clear. Because you can see everything in the dining room for that. Like, it's a bird's eye view. But that's kind of like what I would do is kind of be like, oh, I got two seats open up over there, two top. Hey, it's a blah, blah, blah. Hey, where are you from? Oh, that, and just maybe just kind of talk a little bit more. Or if maybe the line's backing up and you feel people getting kind of antsy and it's like, all right, then you kind of speed it up and kind of moderate the energy a little bit. So if Franklin Barbecue, the experience inside it was going to be music, what kind of music is it? Hmm, probably free jazz. <laughs> Likely, you know. That's what I was thinking, I too. think uh, aside from, like, personal taste and stuff, it would probably be some pretty quirky stuff. I feel bad for that drummer. Because <laughs> <laughs> that rhythm is not consistent. <laughs> but it makes sense. It totally makes sense. And it is a rhythm. It's just a weird one. Maybe um, a little 7-8 over here, a little back to 4-4 four, four for a little bit. It's understanding the vibe, the zeitgeist in the room. Yeah, well, and it's the, it's the same as cooking. I mean, it's the same as, you know, any food thing. You just got to, there's a certain level of like being really detailed. I mean, calculated, but then you also have to leave a certain bit of wiggle room for just like the craft or like the art of it. We had a little bit of these conversations in the past, the guilt of not being at work every day. Oh man, it's rough. What is it? What's going on? Like, do you still feel bad? I feel terrible. Every time I leave there during lunch, I'm just like, oh, I've got to go run errands. I'm like, I feel bad. Like every Sunday that I'm not there, that's family day. Like, I, you know, we get up, we have coffee, we make breakfast or, or do whatever. That was probably the hardest thing about Franklin Barbecue is eventually backing off where I'm not there 24 hours a day. That is so hard. I mean, Stacey and I built that place. Like I jacked up that roof. I did the plumbing. Like I built those counters. Like we did everything ourselves. And started off with like just two people, like Stacy and I working it, and then it's built into this. Uh, but letting go is really tough. And then seeing the level of attention that's spent, and you know, everybody that works there is awesome. The managers are great and stuff, but they just—it's just the touch sometimes that's that's a little missing. You know, you feel bad that the guests don't get to see you. Yeah, yeah, I feel terrible about it. Uh, but at the same time, 
I can't be but there 20 hours a day. But you had to fight to come to that realization, right? You had to like just. Oh, it was Stacy. She's like, seriously, you've got to like, what about your family? Like, you can't just do this. This can't be your only thing. Like, we have a kid. We have, you know, we want to go out to dinner. We want to see you. We want to hang out. Um, and Stacy, you know, runs the office and everything at, at the restaurant. So she's there a lot too. But yeah, just like learning life balance, I think was really tricky. I'm still, I definitely still struggle with that a lot. But it's important. I mean, if you're going to, you know, I mean, look at all these guys. Same thing with bands. It always goes back to music. Look at a band that like was super awesome and then they burned out like, you know, whoever. And then they just gave it too much and didn't have life balance. You know, like maybe it was drugs. Maybe it was just they toured too much or something like that. And then it's like, poof, we killed a good thing because we didn't give ourselves enough care. You know, and that's a, a huge thing in restaurants now. I mean, especially now, more than ever, it's just like life balance. Like you can't just work all the time. It doesn't work like that. I am uh, trying to figure that out. Yeah, it's hard. I'm not there either. Yeah, but, but where you were, like, I think it was like two, three years ago. I don't remember, but I'm like, oh, I think I'm there. Yeah. And I don't know what to do. You know, like, well, I know what to do. Having a kid is going to yeah. be a huge stepping stone for you. But that's the thing. is like, I know, I Because need your whole perspective is completely going to change. I know mine did. 100%. And it's not like a switch. It's like a learned thing. It's like, oh, got this kiddo. And one day you wake up and you've got this little person that's like learning how to talk and like learning how to walk. And they're like, they're calling you daddy or something like that. It's like, oh, all of a sudden this like work thing isn't quite as important as it used to be. Right. And I swear, right. I called bullshit. Every time somebody would tell me, it's like, ah, whatever, whatever. It's not, I can do both. No, No, doesn't. It totally doesn't work like that. No. And I had that. The first thing that came to my mind wasn't how beautiful this child was. Like, right behind the curtain, he comes out, and I was like, oh. I was thinking about work and not about doing work. I was like, oh, I can't do that anymore. That can't happen. This can't happen. Like, instantly. Yeah. I was like, oh. All normal thoughts. <laughs> and I, I have to figure out what that is going to look like, but I'm, I'm getting there because yeah. I'm a workaholic. It is something that I have a real yeah, problem and with. and I am as well. I mean, you know, if it wasn't for trying to get home to have dinner with a kiddo and, and stuff like that, man, I would— still be working 22 hours a day, no doubt. And I want to. I love working. I love what I do. <laughs> That's so crazy. And ah, it's just weird. I'm, I'm also in a transitional phase. <laughs> but, you know, speaking about transition and leaving a legacy and you have a team that is, again, like a band, how do you do more and do less simultaneously, right? Like you must get offers to open up Franklin every week. Eh, not so much anymore. I think everybody kind of knows the answer. And what was they, the answer for a long time? Uh, no. A canned response. Nope. <laughs> How did you say no? Because it's so hard to say no all the time. Well, so, I mean, back to what we do, you know, we can't replicate what we do. It's like Franklin Barbecue is Franklin Barbecue. I have other stuff. have Laura down in South Austin, have the festival, Hot Luck, books, and, you know, same as you, just like a bunch of other, like, peripheral kind of things going on. Uh, but Franklin Barbecue can never be replicated. And I think us knowing that it would just ruin all the integrity that we have um, if we try to do more is makes it a really easy no. I mean, it's just kind of a no-brainer for us. And yeah, people have stopped asking. So yeah. that's pretty cool. I need to learn how to say no. I say no all the time. It's still, it's the one I say yes. The rare occasion I say yes, yeah. it's like, fuck. Yeah, man, I shouldn't have done that. <laughs> I said yes six months ago and now I have to do this. <laughs> um, you know, like, but this whole idea of keeping something intact because of the, I wouldn't say purity, but it's meaningful to you in a way that nothing else, no one else could understand. Yeah. No one else could understand it. 
it's just from the heart. I mean, it's it's a really personal thing to open a restaurant. But, you know, I did this podcast with our critic, Jerry Salt. He won a Pulitzer for New York Magazine. And, you know, we were talking about the creative process and and the whole idea of finding your voice and how often the best way to find your voice is to just do it and not think like to develop it by making mistakes. And you don't have to be as good as you think you are to do that. Right. Totally true. You don't really have to be that good at all. You just have to do it. You just have to try really, really hard and be willing to learn. I mean, like when we opened up the barbecue place, I thought I knew how to cook barbecue. Turns out I had no idea. It would probably take me like another two years to like really get super good at just cooking pork ribs every single day. It took that long before I was like, man, these are perfect. And that's beautiful. It took two years of doing it every single day. Um, Do you have younger cooks today that want to wait that long patiently to understand that? That's the thing. Nobody, Nobody wants to wait that long. Everybody wants it now. And, you know, I think, you know, it took us probably... It took us about 10 years, I guess, to open up Franklin Barbecue. And that's kind of an abnormal story. I was like, we didn't have any money. We just kind of pieced it together over time. But which I think in hindsight, of course, makes us appreciate. We started with like 28 cents in the bank the first day. Like I took that money, I went and bought food for the next day, and I just snowballed it from there every day. But, you know, I think at the same time, like I'd never really was trying tried to like force before we opened up the trailer. And it was like super small scale. I mean, we did like really two briskets a day. It was like pretty really small potatoes, but I never had the pressure like, oh, I've got to get open this week. Oh, we've got to get open this year. Oh, in one year, I need to have a restaurant. I was just kind of like, let things organically happen. When things were naturally ready and all the things were in place, you can, it's kind of, I think about cooking brisket like this, like you can't like force a piece of meat to do what it's going to do. You can't force a fire to cook the way you want it to cook, uh, but you can guide it. And I think kind of life in general is a lot like that. You know, I can kind of guide myself into this barbecue trailer that we wanted to open. I'm going to make a comparison that you probably have never heard and no one's ever heard. What you just described to me of 10 years of finding your voice and getting there is to me eerily similar to Ferran Adria. Ah, yeah. You guys are on the polar opposite ends of the culinary spectrum, right? Couldn't be further. <laughs> Couldn't be further, but you're on the same spectrum that gets the same end goal. Cool. And I just <clears throat> want people to just go out in the wilderness and just figure it out and struggle Just in the best learn. way possible. Well, I think you do need to struggle a little bit. It's like, you know, we have these youngsters that come through the restaurant, want jobs like, oh, I want to make this much money. It's like, you're not worth that much money. <laughs> like, you've never done this before. Like, why would I pay you? It's not even about pay even. It's just like that attitude. It's like, oh, I need to make this much money. I need benefits. I'm 22 years old. I went to culinary school. It was like, you haven't experienced anything. Like, you haven't really learned anything. And that's old way of working in kitchens too. It's an old way of playing in bands. Like it's all the same thing. It's not that I want them. I'm I'm not putting words in your mouth to like suffer financially. Any of these things. No, no, no. It's not about that. But it's like you need to understand why to love this so much. You have to work up to that. Like you can't just have everything you want when you want it. Like that's that's not how I work. You know. And I think you know you don't just like go out and buy a new car every day because you want like a different color. I mean, you know, like that's a bad analogy, but. You know, you got to work totally up makes stuff, sense. You know? And like people were like, oh, I want to be like Ferran and I want to work at LVE. But people don't realize from the, the almost the early 80s to the mid 90s, he ran a highly like he just failed for 10 years. Yeah. But he got there. He got there. He didn't give up. Yeah. And I just want to know how to like tell younger. It's not age has got nothing to do with it. But just if you're going to be in this business, how do you endeavor 
to just <coughs> do the impossible, which is to fail and suffer and get yeah. hurt. Well, hopefully you don't have to hurt too badly or fail too badly. Thank goodness we never really did with Franklin. We got crazy lucky in the, you know, <clears throat> a month into it, it was just and what, already getting crazy. Before we go on, let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. Today's episode of The Dave Chang Show is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Hiring used to be hard. Multiple job sites, stacks of resumes, a confusing review process. But today, hiring can be easy, and you only have to go to one place to get it done. ZipRecruiter.com slash Chang. ZipRecruiter sends your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards, but they don't stop there. With their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invite them to apply to your job. As applications come in, ZipRecruiter analyzes each one and spotlights the top candidates so you never miss a great match. ZipRecruiter is so effective that 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. And right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash Chang. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash Chang, C-H-A-N-G. ZipRecruiter.com slash Chang. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. And now, back to the show. While you've written about it, you've done a ton of talks, and there's a ton of YouTube videos and all this shit about you out there. How do you say and how do you feel like you were able to put your fingerprints on something that's been so widely done already in the past? Like everyone's done, especially Texas barbecue, yeah. right? Like, well, I think when we opened up, the, well, the barbecue scene wasn't what it is now. I mean, it was really, in, in Texas even, even the quality of barbecue wasn't even what it is now. I mean, things have, that game has completely changed. But I think... Yeah, you know, it's kind of like find your passion, you know, like find like, what are you good at? What do you want? And I think I always set goals like way too far. People complain about that, about me doing that a lot. They're like, man, your goals are just too lofty. Like I'll, I'll put, you know, things on people. Can you struggle. go back to that? Are you trying to not reach them and fail I, towards getting them? I put my personal goals way further than I know I can obtain because I know I'm not going to get there, but I'll still land better than I would have if I put that goal shorter. Please explain this more because this um, is something that this I try totally to totally stupid. No, I'm sure. but I, I say the same shit. And I, I wonder when I look at the expression on someone I'm explaining this to, they're like, the fuck what? You you're, you're a weirdo. Why, why do you want to fail? <laughs> Failing upward? What? It's kind of true. Um, you know, like even just like everything, like timing or like, you know, it's almost like a game. Like how much better can I do this? And, you know, you just kind of nitpick everything. But yeah, I mean, obviously the goals of the barbecue that I wanted to make were so far ahead of any barbecue I'd ever had. So far past the, any barbecue that I've ever made. Just I had this vision of absolute perfection. I know I'll never get there. It might not even exist, but like that's what I'm shooting for. And then so when I fall short, I'm still doing pretty good. Like it's kind of like, well, we keep on talking about this paradox thing again somehow, some yeah. way, right? You know, and I think it's kind of more like personal goals and stuff. But, you know, like people at the restaurant are like, hey, you know, I expect this job will probably be like this. It should go like this, like this. They're like, uh, that seems unrealistic. And I'm like, yeah, I know. Just try. <laughs> just, just go for it. But how do you keep them encourage? How do you encourage them to follow on this path of well, failing because, upward? Well, because then because it's not failing. You're still succeeding. But they see it as failure for sure. No, no, no. Because it's only a fail if you don't try. If we sound you like just, Yoda. 
Yeah, well, kind of. <laughs> I'm going to start talking funny too. You know, if, I mean, you know, again, not to sound like a total weirdo, but, you know, and I'm not really just walking around like thinking of this stuff, you know, it's like the only way that you can really fail is just by giving up, I think. I mean, right. it sounds like a surrendering teacher it. trying to give out gold stars or yeah. something here. But it is kind of that simple, I think. You know, I think if your like goals are super lofty, like why would you be stoked to just be mediocre? Life's too short to be mediocre. Totally. Anyway. Just what's the harm in trying a little extra hard? What's the harm in like we know what's going to happen at the end a, of it all, right? Yeah, <laughs> we're not going to be here. Yeah, totally. <laughs> like it really doesn't matter. And if you're perfectly content with not trying, whatever, that's fine too. But I'm not. Like I love the goal of just like trying to do stuff that I really want to do. And. This whole idea of what you're doing and making barbecue, what was the reason for this resurgence, or not even resurgence, this newfound love of barbecue in not just Texas, America, all over the all over the world? Yeah, I mean, what, what, what happened? Um, I blame the internet. So I kind of backtracked. Like when I got into barbecue, it was really just like eh, like a little cooker in the backyard, like like every good Texan, you know, cooks a brisket, you know, here and there. But just like this, something kind of like, I guess I got like just really excited about like the the smell of the fire and just like kind of the quest because it was unobtainable. I didn't know what I was going for and I didn't really definitely didn't know how to get there, but I love the learning process. I mean, it's like making beer, making wine or like roasting coffee. Like there's all these little subtleties that kind of play in it. I love, I'm definitely a details guy and just kind of got into it there. But when I look back about then, you know, there weren't barbecue places like there are now in central Texas, especially you had to drive 45 minutes to an hour in almost any direction to get good barbecue and good wasn't quite what good is now. That target is totally moved. And I think, you know, when we opened up, maybe that was the very early days of like a few people sort of getting into barbecue. There weren't blogs, really. There weren't like TV shows. They didn't have YouTube, the internet, you know, wasn't really doing a thing. Same yet. thing with ramen. Yeah, totally. No one knew shit. No one knew a thing. And a lot of people still don't know anything yeah. about it, much like barbecue. But I think it took a couple people that just kind of like had some magic, you know, and somebody wrote about it. And then it just kind of snowballed from, you know, from being on the internet, you know, and blogs and magazines. And people are just like, oh, what is this? Same thing as ramen, totally. It's like, wow, what? That's been around forever. What's going on over there? Is there um, too much barbecue now? Ah, there is an awful lot of it. And I don't really go around eating barbecue too much. So I don't, I kind of also don't pay any attention to what's going on in the barbecue world. But how are you able to distinctly have the Franklin experience when everyone's effectively cooking the same stuff? I don't know. And that's to me what the beauty of what you've done is to be able to, and I was talking to this about Jessica Cazzo, who's here uh, to, I just had lunch with her about yeah. an hour ago. <laughs> to, for her to make food. That was that the line conversation that right. I was having, yeah. To, for her to make food that everyone understands and to put your mark on something that is so commonplace mm-hmm. is so amazing to me. Yeah. I mean, I think it goes back to the heart and soul of it. It's just the details, the special touches. Maybe it's the love that goes into it. I think it's 100% the love. I, I, I want to get you out of here on a really weird... You, you're talking weird. I, I want... We probably, it's so weird we might not even make it into this fucking podcast. I might just get up and leave. <laughs> but uh, I've been really trying to figure out like where food's going and what's celebrated. And one of the reasons why I think barbecue has become more beloved than ever before is because you can't cook it at home, really. 
You can. You can. But like if you're in New York City, if you're in San Francisco. Yeah, that's true. See, you know I just I mean? have this weird like Texas bubble thing going on down here. Everybody's got a backyard. And it's something of- that I feel like meat over fire or indirect heat is something that we've, we're here because of it, right? Yeah. And it's like something in our bones, in our DNA. That so primal. So I mean, primal. We're, we're genetically conditioned to love that stuff. So you see it, but you can't get it. So it's something that I feel like the, the foods that are going to survive and do very well as this rapidly changing food world constantly shifts and morphs into something that we still don't understand. Yeah. If I were you, I'd be stoked because people are always going to want what you're making. People are going to want sushi. People yeah. are going to want the great pizza makers. The, the very thing that you said you're doing about trying to understand the love of it and not just the love that you extend to the guest that's at your restaurant, but the, the craft of it, the, mm-hmm. the years of technique and mistakes, that's the stuff people are going to pursue to seek out to eat because now that everyone knows it and everyone can possibly do it. Yeah. Well, I wonder if it's going to even evolve, like, you know, you've got like different regional dishes, obviously barbecue, sushi, like all these different locations that all these things happen. And then as the internet has kind of like made that stuff more homogenized, like you could go anywhere and get almost anything. I kind of feel like it's going to evolve back to its roots. You're like, oh, well, that was kind of a bunch of bologna. Um, It turns out you can really just get the best pizza here or you do the best sushi really does come from here or the best barbecue really does come from here. So it might just end up coming full circle, kind of like agree. everything else. That's the craziest thing is I think we're going to come full circle. Yeah, I totally think you're right. And the very foods that we love are the things that you can't get immediately. Because they're special. Yeah, they're and special. they mean something. And that specialness is where I think I get really weirded out because I'm wondering, have we lost what's special in eating? Right? Yes. I think we're losing it. And that's what but makes, I think it's going to come back. It's going to come back, but that's what makes Franklin such a fucking amazing thing. Waiting in line, as stupid as it is, is fun. It's fun and you it's, suff- it's suffering almost, right? Like yeah, a little bit. A little bit, yeah. right? You're, 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 you're delaying your gratification. I've never looked at it like that, but yes, you're totally right. You're delaying your gratification for something. Mm-hmm. And then, like, you work for it. And then once you get there, you're just like, hey, how's it going? It's not that just. That looks really good. Can I have that? Instantly yeah, in front of you, and you lose the. The, the meaning of why you're even there to begin yeah, with. Yeah, you're not right? just looking at like some weird YouTube video of something. Yeah, it, uh, it's special. Yeah, and I don't know where it's going, but I, if I were like uh, thinking about getting into this business, I would try to focus on the kinds of foods that you can't replicate. Yeah, right? well, that's the thing about Central Texas Barbecue too. And I think how everybody got crazy for Central Texas Barbecue is like a certain firewood. I mean, it's like, you're hanging out at like Sam Jones place. It's like, it's a certain wood. It's a certain hogs. It's like all these little, like real specialized things, you know, and barbecue is such like, even though it's a genre of food, but it's even got like sub genres, like a ton of them. But yeah, just the regionality. But do you think that specialness, that loss of specialness, the loss of sort of earning your like celebratory thing mm-hmm. is what's wrong with cuisine today and dining? Kind of. Right. Little, even little to the bit. point of like, there's a reason why supermarkets package their meat in plastic and styrofoam. Mm-hmm. They're trying to desanitize it to the point where it fell off a tree, pretty yeah. much like a fruit. It's just not even, it's not exciting. And we've seen this, and I know this, like when I see cooks bring in their own fruits and vegetables that they've raised or foraged, or if they've been lucky enough to go hunting or if they've slaughtered their own animal, mm-hmm. they fucking treat it like it's the holy grail. Oh, absolutely. Right? And then if you cook that, all of your friends that come in, they want to partake in that celebration mm-hmm. because this pleasurable thing that you're about to enjoy was derived as suffering. Yeah. 
right? It really and it is. might not ever happen again. It might just be that certain time and place, that certain memory that you have. And maybe that, maybe that fruit's not very good. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> but it's got a story, you know? And that was my weird, weird thought. Yeah. Because when I think about, and I swear I think about this a lot, when I think about going to Franklin or going to your favorite restaurant and it's not something you can obtain instantly. Yeah. That's what we all want, actually. I think so, yeah. It's the forbidden fruit. Yeah, I mean, when I travel, like, I'm not, you know, you're not just going to, like, Burger Kings, like, eating, like, the same burger that you can get everywhere. You know, it's like, ooh, man, this guy's making something neat over here. Like, I want to go to that place. I'm going to go sit on, like, somebody's back porch and have a rad meal or, or whatever, so. How do you think we educate that to the consumer base, then? Well, probably just naturally happen. I think it'll end up being like anything else, like, people that care enough will start to seek those things out. And then the others, you know, people that don't care, just don't care. Like, it's no big deal. But I think it'll be, I don't know. I mean, I guess we'll probably just kind of continue the way it is. You know, I mean, obviously, like, if you and I are traveling someplace, we're going to seek out, like, a certain thing. Like, what can we get here that we can't get elsewhere? What's special about this place? Do you go to restaurants in other cities now and you're not looking for the best? You're looking for the best, like, the worst, best restaurant? Yeah, totally. I mean, I love Hole in the Wall, like, just... Super crappy dives and stuff. But places um, when you're people like, why would you go there? You're like, because I like it. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not off the radar of everyone's. Love that stuff. Yeah. Although, you know, good restaurants usually have a bunch of hype too. So yeah, I still go to those places. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know if I got too weird at the end. Man, that's there. not weird at all. That uh, That's pretty good, actually. All right. Um, anything else you got cooking? Anything that the listenership should be aware of? Oh, man, not much. Getting ready for Hot Luck. And talk uh, about Hot Luck real quick. Yeah, so Hot Luck is a little food festival I do here in town with a couple friends. It's kind of like the anti-food festival festival. It's more focused on, like, super rad chefs, you know, and I invite everybody personally. It's just a bunch of friends cooking with friends and, you know, real kind of like little like Southern smoke, just like a bunch of homies hanging out. Um, it's four-day festival. It happens on Memorial Day weekend here in Austin. That's May 23rd through 27th for this year. About 55 chefs from around the country. And I I've, I had to bail personally last year because I've just been in the fucking weeds. But Too much stuff going too on. Too much stuff going on. But I do know this from talking to other chefs. And if you get an email from Aaron uh, to inviting you to this his festival, you do it in a way that is the same way you get your barbecue at your restaurant. It's exactly the same way. To the chef. It's like, hey, man. Hey, I really want you to do this thing. Yeah. Like, yeah. Because it means something. It's special. And you go out of your way. What What do you need? Oh, man, we're building grills for people. Like, You literally, can you talk about that? You have built cooking equipment oh, for these totally. Shows. So, like, the way that, that we do it, of course, it takes a whole team. It's not just me. But, you know, like, I'll ask, like, a cook. Like, this year we have someone cooking, uh, Luigi's mom, because she makes great empanadas. What? <laughs> like, there's no restaurant involved with that. Like, she's just awesome. You know, so like I invite these people because of what they do and also because you know, they're just rad people. You know, I mean, it's not like about like who's on TV or who does this or like how many awards you have. Like it's about your heart, you know, and I think that's super valuable. Obviously, it's what we've been talking about mostly. But like it's kind of like each chef is kind of customized. It's like, well, what do you want to make? What have you not gotten to make at any other festival? You don't do festivals. I usually ask people that don't do festivals like myself. It's like, oh, I've always kind of wanted to do this. I'm like, okay. Well, what do you need to cook that? We need to make a grill, something like that, and I'll have them sketch something out, and then we'll go build it and stuff because I have a welding shop. And then we do it, and then we keep it for the next year, and then it just ends up being in the inventory. So we're just kind of building up this huge inventory of like weird cookery and stuff like that. And 
you know, Andy Ricker's got this weird grill that I built out of 55 gallon barrels. Or the um, chicken, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Doing the chicken. We keep modifying it a little bit each year. It's pretty like Frankenstein at this point. But like there's certain like cookers that just belong to chefs that like keep coming back. And, you know, I don't ask the same people more than a year or two in a row. It's like, give them a break, come hang out. So it's just kind of like an extended family of homies, pretty much. Can I um, offer you a challenge for well building something? Go for it. One of my I mean, like, I feel like I'm trying to knock off, like, everything I love in American food. Like, there's a few things I haven't <laughs> done. Like, <laughs> Benihana, like, restaurant concepts, yeah. right? Like, the one thing I really want to figure out how to do is Peking duck. The oven is yeah. a very unique Y'all have been working on that for a while, right? I have. We have cooked ducks every possible way except for the way they do it in Beijing. Yeah. And obviously, it's a different way because of the, 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 they're not trying to get smoke, but it's a high heat and there's a whole process it's of how they It's a clean combustion, so you get different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I don't know how. I don't know how that. Let's gonna talk. Happen. We should talk. Let's talk. You should sketch something out and send it over to me. Yeah, let's talk about that. I would love to figure that out. See, this is the stuff that keeps me going, man. These yeah. are my fun projects. Because I'm telling you right now, Peking Duck is sort of like your barbecue. It's Absolutely. the one thing I. We'll go to fucking Beijing if I'm lucky enough just to eat that stuff because it's one of the top five best things you could possibly eat Mm. because you can't get it anywhere else. Let's figure that out. If I build it, you're going to have to come cook on this thing for hot luck. 100%. Yeah. Done. Um, Really, though. Seriously, let's totally talk about that. (laughs) This is my fun zone. This is what I do for fun. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Aaron Franklin, thank you so much. Heck yeah. Thanks for having me. Well, that was my conversation with Aaron Franklin. If you haven't been to Austin, Texas before to visit the incredible food scene, you have to stop by Franklin's Barbecue among all the other great barbecue spots. Because, like, literally, you could eat barbecue and get the meat sweats for, like, a week straight because there are so many great barbecue spots. But Aaron Franklin has a soft spot in my heart for just its amazing hospitality, really world-class, makes you feel like you're at your grandma's house and just the epic food. And again, there's some amazing food. And if I was like punch drunk from food, it was because I consumed way too many tacos, breakfast tacos at Veracruz. It's this amazing spot, obviously very well known, but I would like to highlight the quesadilla that I ordered at like nine in the morning. I don't know what compelled me, but obviously the breakfast tacos, the migas, unbelievably good and sort of very, very filling. You can't eat really more than two, but I decided to get a quesadilla as well. And I think that's my favorite thing. As delicious as the breakfast stuff is at Veracruz, I think the quesadilla is a hidden gem. So if you are in Austin, check it out and all the other vibrant, delicious food scenes going on in Austin. But... um I wanted to talk about a couple things that we mentioned in this podcast with Aaron. Again, the concept of a shokunin, I talked about it in the intro, but look it up. I think that that kind of dedication to craft is something that I wish I could be more like. And I think that the culinary arts in general could use more of. And it's not just in cooking. You probably see it in everything from being a wordsmith to a rapper to uh, artist, it's it's sort of a state of mind, and it's a refusal to compromise on anything but quality and getting better every day. It's sort of like this, uh, the Japanese concept of a kaizen, which is like daily constant improvement, which is combined with hansei, which is like self-reflection at the end of the day. 
And I think all of that sort of translates into the concept of shokunin. Again, if you haven't seen Jira Dreams of Sushi, a great film, it gives you an insight in terms of the mindset. One day we'll probably talk about Jiro Dreams of Sushi. I actually joke that Jiro can only dream of sushi, and that has more to do with the, sort of the Japanese culture and system. He couldn't dream of anything else. Um, another thing we talked about, Aaron and I, was uh, I compared him to Ferran Adria, and I don't think many people would really do that. And in most things, when I think about it, I, I always sort of put him on a spectrum in terms of the principles, their worldviews, their overarching philosophy and culinary theory without sounding like a total jackass. But I would say that they're on the polar opposite ends of the spectrum, right? Ferran would be on the most avant-garde, the most cutting edge. Aaron is on the other end of how do I make the most out of the most simple, basic things? And there are many other kinds of chefs and that follow both of these kinds of principles. But the irony to me is, not the irony, but always what is sort of enjoyable to me to think about is how these two individuals at the ends of the spectrum can wind up at the same goal, which is getting better through mistakes. Oftentimes, I feel like both as a chef and as cooks and as diners, we want the food that we eat and the people that make the food to be these like perfect renditions, like they were like born perfect. And both of these individuals only got to where they are uh, again, Ferran being one of the most iconic, great chefs ever, influential. And Aaron Franklin, again, I, I would put on the same sort of category, obviously cooking something different, that got there and did it his own way through a series of mistakes and picking himself up and doing it over and over and over. And I'm talking more and more about Ferran Adria to a younger generation of cooks that work for me. Again, not for age, but simply because they're just entering this profession because it's mind-boggling to me that many people don't remember or even know his significance. And I constantly try to talk about Ferran, not just because him and Albert Adria sort of the greatest cook. If Ferran's the great conductor, Albert Adria is the world-class prodigy violinist, right? They opened up with Jose Andres at Little Spain in Hudson Yards. It's not the reason why I'm talking about Ferran. I'm simply amazed that people don't know as much or the legacy that he's left. And he opened up in Roses, Spain, which is in, uh, you know, probably about two hours outside Barcelona. And it's on the ocean. It's beautiful on this majestic sort of cliff. And he became the chef there in like 1984. And he f was able to fail for, you know, several years, four or five years before he got, I think, his first or second Michelin star. And he it took him 10 or 12 years to get three Michelin stars. This is a whole story in and of itself. Uh, Anthony Bourdain made a great documentary about Ferran and El Bouilly, and there's many, many books. But people look at this talent that Jerry Saltz and I compared to Pablo Picasso like it just happened overnight. That couldn't be further from the truth. And I constantly try to encourage younger cooks or people starting out to find their own voice to fuck up, to go to a place that is going to be cheap enough and encouraging enough where they can make mistakes. And you saw that with what Ferran did, and essentially he changed the culinary world. And you have seen this with, not to a lesser degree, but very much on the same level with Aaron Franklin. And I do not say that lightly. For him to change, again, not single-handedly, right? 
but he was part of a movement. And without him, it's hard to see how barbecue isn't at this level that we have today. And with his vision and his dream and just grit, him and his wife and his sort of network of friends created this cult, this family that is Franklin's Barbecue. And I find it to be one of those beautiful things in the culinary profession, both as a fan and a diner and as someone that loves sort of following chefs and how they do things. And I wanted to talk about Aaron's sort of commitment to hospitality, something that I think gets lost because I think that I can be guilty and I'm sure others have as well because they think that it can be easy. Oh, they're just making barbecue. How much more nuanced and complex can it be? But the reason why he's great besides being a fantastic cook and caring about it, it's he gets the whole package, right? It's about how you walk into his restaurants to how you leave and even to how you are greeted when you're at an event. And there's just like most people sometimes mail it in. Some people I've mailed it in when I do events outside, right? Like it's sometimes the last place you want to be. And he just, I've always admired him because he never fucking mails it in ever. And you can't say that for a lot of chefs. And to make it look easy the way he does is truly remarkable. So I look at chefs like Aaron Franklin as like the tortoise and the tortoise and the hare. So you make it look easy, but you wind up winning. And he has a very inquisitive mind. And I just uh, admire him so much. You can spend your time like hating or you can spend your time doing. And Aaron is about creating community and doing things. And uh, again, I'm not trying to blow smoke up his ass. I, I just trying to say it is so hard to carve out something unique in any walk of life, particularly in barbecue. And I don't think he gets enough credit. The guy really just cooks with smoke, meat, and salt, right? That's pretty much it. And you're talking about a very well-known craft, barbecue, particularly Central Texas barbecue. And to help create this sort of renaissance in barbecue and to help have a distinctive style within like a subgenre of barbecue itself, that's unheard of. That's so fucking hard to do. When you can carve out your own voice and put your stamp on something on a craft or a medium that everyone else does and everyone else understands, and you're not adding anything new. It's sheerly your own emotion and setup and uh, idiosyncratic like thought process that makes it unique. Like again, like I could talk forever about this because it dumbfounds me. Like, how the fuck do you do that? And, you know, I've had other chefs on this podcast, and if I don't, I want to get them on because I do think there's a lot to learn from someone that's just done them. They've committed to their own vision, and they carved out their own sort of universe in something that some form that people felt that like nothing could ever change. So I will stop talking about that, but think about that next time when you think to yourself in a jaded way, everything's been done. Again, I say that shit all the time. Everything's been done. You can't do anything new. But there's a certain set of people that are like, well, okay, if everything's been done before, my job is to do it better. How do I make it better? I just got to execute it better. I have to have the best technique. I got to get the best ingredients. And I have to just love it more than anyone else. I have to care for it more than anyone else. And I think that truly comes through when you wait in line two, three hours, and then you get your food at Franklin's Barbecue. That is amazing. When you wait in line to have that emotion 
where you don't hate it after you leave the restaurant, but you're like, I'm glad I waited in line. That's unbelievable. And at the end of the podcast, when I talk about suffering a little bit, it goes into something deeper that I might talk about a little bit later without sounding too pretentious, but it's like really appreciating what and how we eat and where it came from. And it's not just in food. It's sort of in in general everything and in, in experiential dining. Anyway, I'll shut the fuck up about that. I did want to talk really quickly about my fascination with uh, Peking duck. And there are two kinds, really. I think most people in the world today, when they eat, quote unquote, a Peking duck, it's actually a Chinese roast duck, and that's delicious. Very, very few places do Peking duck that's done in the Beijing style that was created from the sort of the, the royal court. It's like a royal court food. And you know, without going too crazy in, in detail, because I'm not an expert in Peking duck, obviously Da Dong opened up in New York City and it got terrible reviews and I haven't gone there yet because I don't want it to diminish my love of what they make. But there was obviously several great duck places in China and Beijing, but I've long admired how they cook it. They make an incision on like the left side of the duck and they sort of remove all the innards in this tiny hole and then they hang it and then they steam it and then they put maltose on it and they do this whole process. And why I think the ducks there are better is because they don't just rip out the cavity from the bottom of the duck, from the ass of the duck essentially, right? Because you want it to steam. Most of the roast duck that we have or Peking duck in in America and outside of China, it's hammered. The meat's overcooked. And it just isn't moist. And what I've long admired, again, about great Peking duck is that you could have the skin and this magical chemistry happens where the skin becomes crispy and almost like honeycomb wafer, crackly deliciousness type. And it's alchemy, quite frankly. And the meat is cooked through, but it's moist and it's succulent. And then the whole sort of ritual of the pancakes, so they also have these like puffs that you can sort of crack in and, and stuff with duck meat. But it's truly about the duck skin and the textural contrast with the meat. And again, if I had to think of the greatest foods in my life that I've ever had, I would put great peking duck squarely at the top. Everything else would come underneath it. It is one of the few foods I think about. It's communal. Everyone can sort of adjust and tailor how they want to eat their own. Peking duck roll with the pancakes. You can also get a soup at the end. Like I love the transition from turning it from a main course into a second course, either in fried rice or soup. There's a, sort of a, this pageantry involved in it all and, and theatrics with how they cook it in these wood ovens that I'm hoping I'll be able to work with Aaron Franklin on to design because it's not something you've seen in America. It's not a traditional wood oven. And uh, we uh, showed a little bit of it in uh, the barbecue episode in Ugly Delicious. So if you want to have a better idea, check that out. And Heston Blumenthal, in his Pursuit of Perfection, has a great episode about Peking Duck and him trying to re-engineer what it tastes like. And I think he goes to the Dadong in uh, Beijing. So check that out. Anyway, I could talk endlessly about Peking Duck. It is really the thing that I dream about and the food that I save. And I rarely eat any kind of Peking duck in America because I don't want it to sort of ruin my idea of it, this platonic version of Peking duck. So uh, I rarely ever get to go to China, but when I do, it is for sure the thing I want to eat the most. And I'm contemplating how do I figure out how to make our version of it without 
trying to make it perfectly authentic and uh, talking to Aaron, who is so great at constructing oven equipment and smokers, he might be the answer because there's two really obstacles to making great Peking duck, in my opinion. One is getting the duck and the incision process, right, about removing the innards. So the duck is essentially enclosed and it's whole. So when you cook it, the meat steams from the inside while the skin gets incredibly crispy from the drying process. And two is the ovens. While you can have a close cooking process, it's not going to be the same thing. I think that the the Chinese duck ovens are are unique and literally designed only to cook ducks. And they do it in a way that uh, I don't quite understand, which is why I want to figure it out. Anyway, I don't mean to ramble on. Stay tuned next week for our conversation with Eric Costin, or I don't even know if it's going to be a conversation. It's going to be basically about our night out the night before, or me staying in and Eric Costin going out, and uh, his impact on skateboarding and culture. But uh, really happy that I got to talk to Aaron Franklin. Now, shut up. Please give us five stars on however you rate this podcast. iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, you name it. I appreciate it. And big shout out to Yola Tango, as always, for their intro and outro music. Thank you, everyone. Take it easy.